Hey everyone, welcome to this episode with Keith Frankish. Keith is a philosopher, best known for his work on illusionism, a theory on consciousness. And he's also the co-host of the popular podcast Mind Chat, which he runs with the other philosopher, Philip Goff. I hope you enjoy our conversation today. We spoke about Keith's career, his life, and also talked a little bit about illusionism. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe, as it really, really helps this show, given that we're, we're new. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy. Um, thank you for watching. Keith, thanks so much for joining me today. Oh, thanks for inviting me, Joe. So Keith, I know that you were born in a village near Doncaster. What was it like growing up there when you were younger? Uh, not too exciting. Um, I had a quite a secure uh, childhood loving uh, family. Um, very supportive parents, but the location wasn't one that really excited me very much. Um, a very flat area. There wasn't a lot to do. Farming area, still a coal mining area when I was a child. Um, uh, the one thing that I that I really liked um, uh, and that I remember with great affection was playing cricket. I was uh, my father played cricket for the local team, and we travelled around to local cricket grounds. And these these weekends spent on cricket grounds were some of the happiest times of my of my childhood, indeed, of my life. And that gave me a, a love of cricket. Um, and uh, uh, also, I think, a sense of uh, the community of the, 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 the players and the families, uh, which I still, I still keep in touch with those people. I still, when I go back to the village now, I still go down to the village ground and meet, the, meet those people, meet the uh, well, now it's their it's their grandchildren who are playing in the team. Uh, that was a really um, uh, sort of safe and uh, uh, happy focus on my childhood. Uh, other than that, I, I I didn't particularly enjoy school, um, and I didn't enjoy uh, the. Uh, the ap- general atmosphere of the place. Um, I think uh, I still go back there. I still have uh, my mother still lives there, and I still have friends there. But it's it's not a place I look back on with great affection. I'm afraid, um, apart from the 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 the, 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 the cricket um, community. I know that um, unfortunately some of your education was interrupted uh, for a few years because you, you fell a bit ill when you were a teenager, but you did end up going to the Open University to do a degree in arts. What led you to yes. choose this subject? Well, what happened was I was quite seriously ill for some time and this really disrupted my secondary education. And so um, I spent a lot of time uh, educating myself, really. Um, I wasn't able to do much other than read. And so I did a lot of reading. I'd always been a quite uh, curious person. I was always enjoyed learning. I always enjoyed asking questions. Not sure other people enjoyed uh, hearing me ask questions, but I enjoyed asking them, trying to find out things. So when I had this time where I couldn't do much else, I did a lot of reading. Um, uh, I, there were a series like the Penguin Classics and the Penguin English Library. I, I love those books. I, I, I went through uh, 
all the classic literature, really classic Western literature, anyway, from from uh, Greece and Rome through to the English literature, nineteenth uh, uh, century novels, uh, modern literature, and also philosophy. I started reading philosophy then, and I, I've just read a lot of stuff. Rather, I suppose, rather in a rather unplanned and uh, way, uh, if something, if I heard that something was important or was a classic, then I would, I would read it in this classic autodidact way. Um, now, so when I did go back into education then, and I started first by doing an open university degree, I'd already got a lot of interests and a lot of um, a lot of knowledge in a, a rather unorganized form, and I, I didn't really have a clue what I, where I could go. Um, I, was, I was quite, in, I was very interested in, in ancient history, in ancient uh, Greece and, um, and Rome. I was very interested in literature. I was very interested in Shakespeare. I, I can, if people let me, I will still recite bits of Shakespeare. To them. I, I love Shakespeare. Um, I was also got interested. I was also interested in uh, in philosophy, of course, and I'd read quite a lot of, of psychology too. So I didn't really know what I was going to do. And this studying with the Open University was was in a way the ideal thing because you didn't have to choose a degree program. Uh, the degrees were completely modularized, and so you could put together pretty much any combination of courses you wanted. Um, I was. Uh, I, I knew I wanted to do an arts degree, but I did a lot of different courses in the sort of subjects I've just mentioned, ancient um, uh, ancient history, literature, Shakespeare. I did all the philosophy courses I could, um, including an absolutely terrific course called Reason and Experience on the early modern philosophy. It's, it's, uh, it's quite a famous course, I think, with the people who've, who've um, encountered it. It was brilliant introduction to uh, early modern philosophy, the rationalist tradition and the empiricist tradition. So I did that. I also did some courses on history, um, religion, history of religion. And what this enabled me to do, I think, was to explore all my different the different interests I'd formed and see which of them I, uh, I was most excited by. And I was pretty clear by the time I'd finished that degree that it was philosophy I wanted to do. Um, that was the one that really really gripped me, the one that I felt, you know, I, I, I felt like I couldn't leave it, I think. I think that's the thing. If I'd been told I couldn't do any more philosophy, I'd be very upset. So when I went on to do postgraduate work, it was, it was, it was philosophy that I, um, that I did. And I went to, to Sheffield then, which had a very strong philosophy department, still does have a very strong philosophy department. Um, this was in the early 90s, uh, to study for an MA and then later for a, for a PhD there. What do you think it was about philosophy as opposed to the other arts that you know really gripped you and you went on to eventually do it at Sheffield? That's a good question, and I don't really know. I think oh, here's something I often say about that, and I don't know whether it's true, but it sort of makes sense. I, I was, I was, I've always been quite a, quite an anxious person. I was, I was anxious as a child. Anxious not just about personal things, but anxious about understanding things. If I didn't understand something. It bothered me. I mean, here's a little story that I sometimes tell. When I was uh, at primary school, I was, I was learning fraction, how to do fractions. And the teacher said, look, if you learn how to multiply fractions, and then 
she said, now, if you want to divide one fraction by another, you turn the second one upside down and multiply. Just do it simple. And uh, I said, oh, yeah, right, I understand. Why, why do you do that? And she said, that doesn't matter why you do it. You just do it and you'll get the right answer. And so I did the exercise like that and I got the right answer. So, but I said, but why? Why do you turn the second one upside down rather than the first? Why do you, why do you multiply rather than doing something else? Why, why does it work? She said, I don't know why it works. It just works. Just, you know. <laughs> and this bothered me. I wasn't happy using this technique. I didn't understand it. And so it, it kind of nagged at me all that day. And we were playing football in the afternoon, I think, at school uh, games. And, and I, all the time I was thinking about this. And when I came home, I was, I, I was dirty from playing football. And my mother said to me, you know, go and get washed. Go and get a, go and get a bath. So I went upstairs and I was still thinking about this thing. And I, I got in the bath and I was sitting on my, And I, was, <laughs> I had this sort of Archimedes moment in the bath where I was, I was thinking about it. And I suddenly realized, why it worked. I, 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 I satisfied myself as to why this procedure worked. I understood the rationale behind it. And I sort of had this eureka moment in the bath where I worked out why you turn the second fraction upside down and multiply. And, and I felt so pleased that I'd sorted this out. And uh, now I like to think, think maybe that that's, a, that's that sort of anxiety about understanding that lies behind a lot of philosophy, that philosophers aren't content with the... Um, with the the routine explanation or the routine instructions about how to do things. They want to ask, yes, but why? They don't just want to know what causes what. They want to know what causation is. They don't want to know what time things happen. They want to know what time itself is. They don't just want to know what people think and so on. They want to know what thinking itself is. It's this asking questions that most people take for granted. This is a a kind of uh, a nice little sort of just so, so story, but it, it does, I think, reflect something about me and also something about the the discipline of philosophy. It's asking, it's inquiring into the things that that most people take for granted, um, perhaps wisely take for granted. Um, so maybe that was one of the reasons that I found it satisfying this anxiety in myself to uh, get to the bottom of things. And of course, if there's one thing more than any that puzzles that puzzles everyone, I think it's it's with their own minds. I mean, you, minds are amazing, strange things that are the, there are seem to be our, our immediate reality, the thing we know best. Yet they're also deeply, deeply puzzling, and they're also connected to this this astonishingly complex organ, the brain, this complex structure that we. That we know of in the in the universe, and how how uh, how the, the 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 mind is related to the brain, how the brain produces or is the mind. I said this is one of the deepest and most, uh, if you like, anxiety-provoking questions there is. So I think it was it was fairly natural that I gravitate to that. It's a great story about the. The maths lesson. You clearly were a philosopher from a from a young age. Then. Perfectly true. <laughs> um, as you said, you you went to Sheffield. Uh, I saw online that you when you did your masters at Sheffield, your thesis was on some of Daniel Dennett's work. And I know that you say you're a bit of a disciple of of Dennett. Was this where your your interest in his his work began then? Uh, not quite a uh, Sheffield. Uh, even before that, I'd um, I'd read his. Uh, a book consciousness explained 
uh, as soon as it came out in, uh, I think it was 1991, and immediately it had gripped me. Immediately I had thought that here was somebody who was doing what the um, what the the great philosophers of past generations had done, that seeing the big picture, seeing how things really fitted together here, instead of, as a lot of modern philosophies seem to be doing, getting bogged down in a lot of technical details. And after all, when it comes to the mind, you really do need to take a broad perspective to understand how things fit together. And I thought, I thought this guy's, I didn't really know who he was at the time, but I thought this guy's onto something here. And I've read the books many times since then, and each time I've that feeling has been uh, confirmed and deepened. I've seen more in it every time. So when I went to Sheffield, I already then it was already a presence in my philosophical sort of landscape. Um, and what I what I um, wrote my MA dissertation on was 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 not a, uh, about uh, Dennett's views on consciousness. It was about um, uh, a distinction he made between two kinds of belief, between belief and what he called opinion. Uh, and he, he hasn't written a, a great deal about this. He published a paper on it back in the 1978, quite a short paper, and he's mentioned this distinction in various places. And it seemed to me that there was, it was really on, really important distinction, really onto something very important. And um, and so I thought, oh, there's, there's something here that I can... I can uh, develop, um, build on. Um, and that's what I uh, did in my, I started doing with my MA dissertation, then did later with my, in my PhD. And uh, indeed, my, it was my first book uh, came out of that project. And so it, this is, this is one of the, the great things I think about, about Dennis and about uh, the, the best philosophers. They, they don't just have a complete theory of, of something all worked out and nailed down. They have insights. They latch on to important things. And sometimes they don't follow these insights through completely, but they, they, they're, they're, a, they're like a, a mine where you can go and extract bits of gold and, uh, and you can, maybe that metaphor doesn't quite work, but they're a great source of inspiration and suggestions and ideas and they're pointing you in interesting and fruitful directions. And those are the philosophers you want to read. Not the philosophers who give you the impression, well, I've, I've nailed all this down, I've sorted it all out, this is the answer, just listen to me and I've got it. No. And then it's not like that. Then it is a, is a, is a uh, um, what's the word, fertile sort of philosopher who sows ideas in people's minds. And uh, that's one among many reasons why I'm, I'm so uh, fond of his work. You stayed there to do your, your PhD as well. Then, what was your research on for your, your PhD thesis? Well, yeah, there was there was a debate. I suppose it's still going on about the nature of what's what philosophers call folk psychology. By this, they don't mean um, a sort of Reader's Digest ideas about psychology. What they mean is that the, the very basic way we have of explaining and predicting people's behavior, namely by talking about what people think and what they want. Um, and we explain why somebody uh, arrived for a meeting at a certain time by saying that they believe they had this appointment and they wanted to keep it. And that seems a perfectly good explanation of why they were there. And it's very difficult to give a, uh, an explanation, say, in, in, uh, in, in neurological, in, in, in uh, neuro. Uh, 
scientific terms of why they were there. Um, so this folk psychological way of explaining each other's uh, uh, behavior and predicting each other's behavior seems quite indispensable to us. But is it, there was a big debate about the, the nature of this theory. Is it, is it actually a, a proto-scientific theory? Are these the notions of belief and desire and thought and other similar other uh, uh, folk notions such as emotion, for example, are these notions that, are, that are a scientific psychology will use? Or are they just something like everyday um, um, what's uh, the, the are these principles these psychological principles that we use to explain people are they just rules of thumb and these descriptions of people as believing things and wanting things are they just rough and ready everyday descriptions that kind of do some work in coordinating our activities but don't really get at anything uh, 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 that that a science of the mind would uh, would want to use will a science of the mind actually uh, use different concepts and different principles drawn, say, from neuroscience, and will eventually cast aside this everyday explanatory framework. So that was a, that was a, a debate that was going on, and it seemed to me that the people in this debate were, were were missing something, which was that when we talk about belief and people believing things, um, there's more than one thing we mean by that. Sometimes we're talking about a, one kind of, of attitude and sometimes we're talking about a rather different sort of attitude. And this was what Dennett was uh, uh, pointing at with his distinction between belief and opinion. Uh, put it very simply, belief is something that's manifest in your behavior. So we, we can talk about somebody, we can say that somebody believes something on the basis of just observing their behavior. And we talk about animals believing things. You can see my, my cat believes that the food is in the kitchen because it's scratching at the kitchen door, say, or whatever. Whereas opinion is a more explicit kind of state that's, that's um, usually, if not always, articulated in, in language. And so I can have beliefs with contents that, I, that, are, that are very specific. I can, Dennett has an example of where, I can't remember what it was, where... Where um, where an author, a particular author was born, in which city a particular author was born, it's hard to see how you could have that belief without having language to articulate it. Um, and so you have these these structured linguistic states that uh, you explicitly formulate to yourself and to other people, and then you have this more uh, behavioural form of belief that's manifest in in the way you act in the world. And I thought that making this distinction making it more, um, um, clarifying it and uh, uh, developing it more carefully was going to be very important to this debate about uh, the role of folk psychology because there, there are different kinds of explanatory practices and predictive practices associated with these two different kinds of belief. And so I spent a lot of time trying to sort this out and um, uh, provide an account of what these a more precise account of what these two sorts of belief were and how they were related to each other and what role they played in in behavior and uh, their relation to things like consciousness and so on. And uh, I wrote my PhD thesis on that and then my first book was on that. 
um, which I called, I think now, rather foolishly, I called it mind and supermind, because the idea was that these two kinds of belief form something like two different, two levels of, of, um, of mentality, one of which is it were constructed on the back of the other. You, you, can, um, you need to have this rich basis of the behavioral kind of belief, the mind, to be able to construct this more explicit level of what I call the supermind. It sounds rather, it sounds a little bit, um, uh, supermind sounds, it might be something paranormal, of course, which is the last thing I intended. Uh, but I had this two-layer, two-level picture of the human mind, and I, I traced it out in some detail in that book, and I still think that that the picture I got there was pretty, pretty much right. I still like it, and I, I, I I've got, gone, I've gone off in other directions and worked a lot on consciousness, but I would at some point like to come back to that and try and represent those ideas because I still think there's a lot in them. That's really interesting. There's another thing at Sheffield as well, you, as well as your MA and PhD. I believe you met your wife, Maria, there. That's right, yep. I wanted to ask, what, what is a marriage between two philosophers like? Oh, I suppose it depends on who the, what, what, the on every individual philosopher. I don't think there's, I, I couldn't um, uh, generalise. Um, Maria is a, a, a a unique person, a very special person, and um, as anyone who knows her will tell you. Uh, so I don't think I can generalize from her qualities uh, to, 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 to other people. One thing that, well, I think in our case, we are both actually, we're both genuinely interested and excited by philosophical ideas, and we've we've collaborated on a couple of things in the past. And we, this is one of the things. I, it's it's certainly it's it's the opposite of a source of friction in a marriage. We both enjoy philosophy very much, and it's one way we can really, uh, <laughs> sense, instead sort of instead of watching Netflix or something, we we do enjoy sitting <laughs> talking about philosophy, um, which sounds awful, but. Um, it's a it's it's a common passion, and I think we we both read each other's work. We comment on each other's work. I hope we've I think we've both uh, helped each other in different ways uh, with our work. Maybe actually, maybe really, uh, it's another philosopher is the only person to whom it would be fair for a philosopher to get. Married. To get married, uh, because a philosopher's interests are, are are somewhat peculiar and can be a bit consuming, uh, and it probably takes another philosopher to understand that. Uh, it probably goes for anybody who's got a, a, a well. I don't want to over dramatize a bit, but an obsession. It helps to be with someone who shares that obsession, uh, just so that they understand it and don't get too annoyed by it sounds like a, a good team then oh, it's a great thing yes so so after sheffield well i mean i know you're, you're you live and work in crete now but after sheffield you you worked at sheffield for a bit and then i think you're at the open university and at cambridge can you detail that path a little bit where you, where you were between there and now yes well well I, I i i had some some temporary positions at sheffield and then um I was applying for um, junior research fellowships at um, uh, 
uh, at Oxford and Cambridge. But I, while I was doing that, I, I got a job, a permanent post, um, with the Open University in Milton, Milton Keynes, um, which was a job as a central, what's called a central academic. Uh, the, the, uh, so I, I went back to the Open University as a, as a, as a lecturer. And uh, central academics, the, the, the university has a white dist distributed structure. So there are the central academics in Milton Keynes who produce the courses, who write the courses and prepare the courses and prepare the course material, the exams and so on. And then there's this local, there's this distributed network of associate lecturers who teach the material to to um, groups in their area. So I was a central academic and uh, I, my job was writing, writing course material um, primarily. And I think it was, a, it was an excellent training um, for what I've gone on to do because we wrote in teams, in course teams, and everyone subjected everybody else's, everybody's work was subjected to criticism by other members of the, of the team. Everything was read and pulled apart by, by, by the team members. It was pretty, pretty, um, it could be pretty hard at first getting used, getting used to this. Um, but it was a great training in writing accessibly because that's what it was all about. It, the, 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 the criticism wasn't primarily about the, the, um, the academic quality of what you were writing. It was taken that you were writing on something you knew about, but it was about the accessibility of it, whether it would work for the students because the university has a wide range of students and a wide range of backgrounds. And it's important that it's that material is presented in a way that will be uh, that will work for as many as possible. So you need to get it right, but you also need to get it clear and you need to get it, um, uh, you need to provide lots of examples, lots of ways in, lots of phrase the same thing in different ways. Make sure that you're keeping, make it entertaining as well. Make sure that you're keeping everyone on board. And that's what this, this process of, of, of criticism was about. And it was a great training for writing uh for a wide audience, which is something that I've moved on to doing, which I, I think is a very important thing for academics to do. So I spent about 10 years there um, doing this and um, it was it, it was a good time. I, I very much believed in what the Open University was doing and is doing. Uh, I met, made some great friends there. Maria um, also um, got a job there uh, at the time and we lived um, in Milton Keynes, so I've, I've lived in some of those glamorous places in 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 in, in Britain, in uh, in Doncaster, uh, and in Milton Keynes. Um, but I did at that time also get a position. One of the colleges to which I've been applying for a junior research fellowship uh, want needed a um, needed a director of studies and uh, to look after their um, their philosophy undergraduate. So I did that for a while at Robinson College. I was a member there for a while, and that was interesting too. Um, um, seeing, meeting some, uh, again, a, a, quite a wide range of people from different backgrounds who were all pretty, pretty committed to philosophy and uh, always enjoyed teaching philosophy. You're now at the University of Crete. What inspired you to move over there and join that university? Well, I, I, I don't. I don't work. I don't have a full time position with the University of Crete. I do a bit of teaching with them, but it's 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 uh, on a pro bono basis. I mean, I, I have an affiliation with them. Um, we moved here essentially for 
um, family reasons. Um, I won't go into the family's situation, but there was there were some caring needs in uh, in Maria's family. Maria was originally uh, from from here from Crete, and um, we decided to um, to move here to to help with that. Uh, um, and uh, we also we had two young children at the time, and we thought it would be nice for them to um, to grow up here, uh, close to their their grandparents, and their Greek grandparents, and uh, Maria's uh, brothers. Uh, at first, it, it was intended to be a temporary move, but then things got a bit complicated by the um, by the Greek crisis. Um, we didn't want to leave at uh, at the height of that, and uh, in many ways things were were working out reasonably well here for us. There were, um, so uh, my position now is I'm a sort of I'm kind of I'm on the periphery, uh, as it were, of, of, of formal academia. I do I have affiliate I have affiliations with Sheffield. Um, I'm an honorary professor there now. Uh, and I still regard Sheffield as my as my academic home. I'll be going back there next week, actually. Um, I have an affiliation still with the Open University. I do some teaching here for the University of Crete, um, but I'm also operating in the, uh, as a freelance uh, writing, um, uh, increasingly writing. I say popular philosophy. I don't. I don't it sounds. I don't I'm sure. I like that term philosophy for for a wide audience, which I increasingly feel is the is one of the most important things an academic can do. Um, yes, research is important. Uh, and uh, I think every academic should do some research and everyone's got something important to say, but producing research simply for the sake of filling in one's CV is not something that I, that I feel too excited by. I think communicating ideas, um, sharing good ideas, doing the sort of thing that Dennett does with his in his work, writing books that are aimed both at an academic audience and a popular audience, which academics can find stuff in and, and a general reader can find stuff in, and can engage in a, a conversation, if you like, that includes many different people from many different backgrounds. I think that's very, very important for academia. I think a conversation that includes only academics is, I don't want to be too cynical about this, but I, I think it can become, uh, it can become detached from the context that makes it important. And you need intelligent lay people to engage with it, with academic work and say and and locate its relevance for um uh, for, for people's lives and uh, now that's I, I, this, 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 I, i'm quite ambivalent about popular philosophy in many ways i believe in it totally as i just said i'm wary of popular philosophy that is preaching to people that is telling people, look, here's the or popular psychology that says, here are the here's the here are the life hacks <laughs> that I can teach you. And I, I, I think that most a lot of that is is, is 
can actually be damaging. What the sort of philosophy I believe in, popular philosophy, is the sort that says, here are some ideas people have had that you may like to think about and scrutinize and assess and see if they work. Here they are. Let me show them to you and you see what you think. It should be Philosophy should be a conversation. So I'm getting a little bit... Um, a little bit uh, dogmatic here, I think. So maybe I should let you uh, ask me another question. No, that's all good. It's an interesting um, thing, this popular philosophy. Apart from Dennett, who else do you think has done this well? And is doing this well, well my, my, my former colleague from the Open University, Nigel Warburton, I think has, has, has written some wonderful popular philosophy that does exactly this, that is designed not to, to tell people what to think, but to to bring people into the academic, uh, uh, bring people into the world of philosophy, to introduce them to the com- the, um, the debates that have been going on there for centuries and show them how to engage with it and do it, and do it for themselves. I, 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 he says, uh, I, I, think I'm, I don't think I'm misquoting on this, on him on this, that philosophy is not a spectator sport. You need to get involved. And he's providing, if you like, the training for people to get involved and do it for themselves, uh, and I'm very, I, 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 I'm great admirer of the way he does this and uh, of the of the project itself, um, and of course, but there are many people doing 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 similar things, and uh, uh, so it'd be it'd be invidious to just pick out one name, but I, I certainly um, uh, I certainly admire everything Nigel has done. Yeah, this, I mean, the show he runs with David Edmonds, Philosophy Bites, is, is brilliant. Yes, indeed. That's maybe the best and example. And it has, exactly, that's a great example of it. And it has oh, something like 50 million downloads or something like that. Uh, and it's fascinating. And the, the, it's really a reflection of the open university ethos, I think, because it's, it's, it's high quality stuff. It's not dumbed down. It is... It is uh, you're you're getting the experts talking uh, authoritatively about um, about their subjects, but they're doing it in a way that communicates um, uh, with a with, with a much wider audience. And uh, I think it's that I mean uh, Nigel is a sort of one man open university. I think in, in many ways uh, he's he's a force of nature. Yeah, it's really accessible. I think every episode's about 15 to 20 minutes. But as yeah. you say, it's for those 15, 20 minutes, it's not done down and it's, uh, it's proper stuff. So, yeah. Um, well, anyone else? Do you do you like Alain de Botton? He's wrote a few books and he runs that organisation called The School of Life. Have you seen their videos, their books? I'm afraid I don't know much about his work. I, I, I really should know more um, and I'm afraid I don't. So I confess I haven't read his, his book. So I... I, I, I really can't say anything good or bad i know he's he's had a lot of influence on uh, many people um and anyone who, who who gets people interested in philosophy is doing good work as far as i'm concerned so um, uh, but i i couldn't comment in detail i'm afraid that's 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 a i'm ashamed to say that well on this point of you know, kind of getting people more involved I, I want i did want to ask you about the the podcast that you run now you run this podcast called mind chat you co-host it with the philosopher philip goff I was going to ask you, you know, how you decided to do this show and why you decided to do it. But was it was it for this reason to to kind of get something out there in a, a nice format that people could enjoy a bit more? People who are interested in the subject and maybe don't know much about it. Was that the, the idea of the show? Yes, yes. We met in two thousand and fourteen. There was a, it's um, 
uh, on, uh, there was a, um, a, um, a cruise uh, in Greenland that was organized by um, a Russian uh, philosopher and, and businessman. And uh, it was about consciousness. Um, and I was lucky enough to be invited to take part in this along with with Daniel Dennett and uh, Andy Clark and uh, David Chalmers and many other leading philosophers of consciousness. And Philip was there too. And so we got to know each other um, during that trip. And we had very different views about consciousness, um, diametrically opposed really. Um, I, uh, uh, Philip is a firm believer in the existence of this distinctively phenomenal form of consciousness, the sort that is that is um, not explicable in physical terms. And he doesn't just believe that it's real, he believes that it is in a sense everywhere, that everything, every little fundamental particle has a bit of it. Whereas I think that, that this notion of phenomenal consciousness is... Not consciousness itself in the everyday sense, but phenomenal consciousness. That's what the philosophers talk about. I, I think it's a misguided notion and a misconceived notion, and I don't think it's anywhere, not even in our brains. So we couldn't really have more diametrically opposed views, but we kind of got on together. We had a similar sense of humor and we, we enjoyed talking. And um, so two or three years ago, Philip was thinking of having a podcast, and I said, Yeah, I've been. I've been thinking of doing something like that because everybody's got a podcast, right? Um, and then I can't remember which of us suggested it or whether someone else suggested it. Why don't you do it to together like like the odd couple? And so we thought, oh, why, why not do that? And we also thought that we, we thought that would give a nice, um, well, it would be a nice gimmick for the for the show. There would be a sort of the show for the for, for the podcast. That, Quite a nice dynamic that should be interesting. Whoever the guest was, we could be coming at them from different different sides. Uh, and also, we thought it might be a nice example of people with very different views being respectful to each other and liking each other and handling their disagreements in a charitable and humorous way. And I guess it good example generally and, uh, and also a good example in, in academia where some disputes can be can be pretty um, uh, um, bitter so we, we, we decided to do it and uh, it's I think it's, it's, it's gone fairly well we've, we've, we've certainly got a, a bunch of people who, who, who follow us and enjoy listening to us and uh, we enjoy doing it because we get to talk to some really interesting people. Uh, uh, it's the time flies by doing these these for me at least it flies by. We're talking to such interesting people that we can talk for three hours, and I hardly notice that time has gone. Um, and I hope people enjoyed. I think perhaps we're not quite making it as accessible as we as we want to but we're working on that we're learning we've done two series of it now and we're planning the third series which is going to be very good by the way we've got some great guests um so we're going to work on 
on, on broadening the audience. We don't just want to talk to people who are already interested in philosophy of mind. And, uh, well, it's our little bit, it's our little contribution to, to this, this, uh, this project that I keep talking about, the project of make, widening the, uh, the conversation. It's brilliant. I really recommend anyone listening to it. It's, it's a very fun show, accessible, and yeah, as you say, it is nice to see people with very different opinions kind of you know get along and talk about it in a friendly way. So I think you guys pull that off really well. Well, yes, I think it's very important to do that because, I mean, provided the other person is in good faith and they're not they're not motivated by 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 some uh, some sort of. Uh, uh, some unpleasant kind of um, uh, uh, doctrine. Um, if they if they're genuinely trying to work out the best view about something, and uh, they're since they've thought about it sincerely, and they're they're they're, they're an honest uh, um, player, as it were, then you've nothing to gain by by refusing to engage with them. Uh, engage with them. Listen to them. Talk to them. You might. They might actually uh, show you places where you are, are wrong. They might show you things that you've neglected, things that you need to reflect on. They might help you to see where you need to say more in defense of your view. Um, at the very least, you'll get to understand their position better and to see why it attracts them and, and other people and be in a better position to discuss it and say why you think yours is better. You've nothing to, lo to, to lose by engaging. Um, and you've a lot to gain, um, and in most cases, the, 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 I suppose the truth is somewhere between between the t between the extreme positions. Um, it's unlikely that one person has got everything right. So uh, that may, may be. I often find with 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 views that that I that I uh, disagree with that nevertheless there are bits in them that are clearly right and that I think yeah I, that's right I need to acknowledge that and but I, I can do that I can do it without giving up my position but I'm going to need to modify it a bit to take account of that point it's my position better and in the end it doesn't matter if it's my position or the other person's position that's right what I mean that's not for me to decide or for them to decide it's for the community to decide it's for the future to decide so we just do our best in presenting our our position and Put it out there. It's not good to get too personally involved. I think um, in the um, with your position as a as a philosopher, because um, well, it can be quite quite stressful. Yeah, that's, that's certainly true. Well, it's a great show. I'll put, I'll put a link in the description. I hope people can can check it out. Um, it'd be good just to touch on a little bit. You know, some of your your ideas. Um, you know, we were talking a minute ago about consciousness and the. The different way that you come of it from Philip, I mean, you're, mm -hmm. you're well known for for laying out your your ideas on what you, your theory, which is illusionism. Could you just simply, as simply as possible, kind of lay out what that what that idea is and what you're, you're saying about consciousness with it? Yeah, well, I, I should say that this isn't this is this is my position in the sense that it's one that I um, endorse, but it's not my position in the sense of one that I invented. I mean, it's it's essentially Dennett's position. Um, I, what I did was I coined the name, um, although Dennett had already used the, the, the term illusion in, in many places. I just added an ism to it. Um, but one thing I wanted to do actually with it was to to try to. Um, it, it's useful to have a name. It focuses people's attention on something. It it it, it, it it's it's a 
uh, it's a useful way, a useful hook to, 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 to get people into the debate. And I felt people had, although Dennett's work is widely respected and widely read, and, uh, and he's one of the most influential, important um, philosophers of mine um, in the world, probably the most important, I still felt, I felt his ideas were often, consciousness were often dismissed unfairly. Uh, and this upset me. Um, I felt that people didn't understand what he was saying. They misunderstood. They, they, they read very uncharitably, perhaps without realizing it, and dismissed his ideas. And I, I wanted to try, try in my little way to do something about that. So illusionism. Um, people who haven't read much of what I've written or what Dennett's written think that I'm saying that consciousness is an illusion, that we're not really conscious. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that we radically miss, or at least philosophers, many philosophers radically misconceptualize philosophers for consciousness. They have a bad theory of what consciousness is. Um, they conceptualize consciousness as something like, and then we, 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 straight away we get into metaphors, something like an inner show or an inner light that is somehow created by the physical brain, but is not, uh, it's not the same as the physical brain, it's something, some extra feature of the brain beyond its physical features. Something that you wouldn't find simply by examining its physical features, that a neuroscientist wouldn't find. It's some, it's some extra private world that is only available to the person themselves, from the first-person perspective. It's not visible from third-person perspective. It's a private world, something like a private show, where all the properties that we ascribe to things around us in the world, colors and sounds and tastes and smells and so on, are, are presented in a private medium. As a, the private versions of these colors, and the colors that we take to be around us are actually what we're actually immediately aware of are private mental colors presented in a private mental world, the world of consciousness. And so it's what we're immediately aware of is this world of consciousness. And the world around us is something like a, uh, an inference from that private mental world. So I'm, I'm caricaturing there, but that's gesturing at the idea. So consciousness is like the notion of an inner show. It's one that, that Dennis has used a lot. Or an inner light, a sort of... <laughs> are the lights on inside is a question that sometimes I ask. With, with, with a fish, if you see a fish that's struggling in pain, or struggling after being injured, you can certainly see how it's reacting to the injuries that it has. But then it's tempting to say, yes, but is there an inner world there where it where the pain is actually presented to the consciousness of the fish or something. And it's very tempting to think that that's a question that you really can't settle by just studying fish or studying fish anatomy and fish fish um, um, uh, uh, fish, uh, fish brains. And I think that whole conception of consciousness um, very tempting, and it's gesturing at something. I'm not saying that it's doing nothing, but I think it's wrong. I don't think that is really this private world of consciousness. I think that is an illusion. That doesn't mean we're not conscious. It means consciousness, in the, when we talk about being conscious, having conscious experiences, doesn't involve that. I think it involves a much more direct kind of engagement with the world. 
when we're conscious, when I'm conscious of things around me, that's not through the medium of being conscious of some private mental world in my head. It, no, I'm directly conscious of the things around me. I'm directly locked onto the colors and shapes and sounds of things around me. I don't, it's not filtered through some private inner, inner medium of mental qualities. And, because after all, then if it were, then we'd have the question of how am I related to that mental? If, the, if we think there's a problem as to how I experience the world around me and that it has to be presented in, uh, through a mental world, well, how am I aware of the mental world? Does that have to be presented through another mental world? It's not really solving anything. What I think it is doing, though, this talk about a private mental world, about phenomenal consciousness, I think it's gesturing at something about the nature of our psychology and the nature of our perceptual processes and the, the introspective access we have to them. I think it's gesturing at something. It's not based on nothing at all. But it's, it's the, and I think this is the, the right word, it's, it's, it's like an illusion. Illusions are not based on nothing. Uh, if if a, 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 an optical illusion it's not based on nothing. There's something there, some arrangement of shapes and colors and lines and whatever that creates a certain effect, say, of movement where there isn't actually any movement. There's something there, but it's producing an impression in you that is misleading. That's what I think is happening with consciousness. There's certainly all kinds of st stuff there, but it's producing an impression on us in the sense of disposing us to form a certain theory of what's happening that is wrong. Okay, so it's we are misled about our own um, the nature of our own minds in that way. Um, so that's, that's essential. So, so it's, it's the view that consciousness in this specific philosophical sense is illusory, it's not real. But it's not this claim that we're not conscious, that we don't see and hear and feel and you know, feel pain. And all that. It's, a, it's a theory about what it is to see and hear and feel and be in pain. There's two things um, you pointed to there that you, a lot of philosophers believe that you don't agree with. One that was that there's no, not this inner movie playing inside their own heads. You, you, you think it's much more, there's, there's a direct observation, like interaction with the world. It's not that there's this, this movie inside the head. I understand that, but the other thing was that it's not privately observable. Is that right? Mm -hmm. I took privately observable to mean that, so if, I'm, if I have, we both, as you said, you, you, you do believe that people are actually conscious. If I'm, um, conscious of an object in front of me, um, does it not just mean that it, for me, for it to be privately observable, that I'm conscious of it in a way that you're not, it's private to me, you don't have a conscious experience? What, what was that part? I don't quite understand Okay, so we need to distinguish different senses of private. There's there's one sense in which I I can, look, I can perfectly, uh, perfectly happy to, um, to accept indeed to emphasize that you have your own take on the world. So if there's an object in front of you there, and then it's um, uh, and you're looking at it from here, and, I, and I'm sitting over there and looking at it from a different perspective, we each have our own take on it. We're each interacting with that object in a different way, okay? And it's producing a different effects on each of us. Um, perhaps it's something that uh, for you it's something you've never seen before, and you just note it's it's a little um, I say a, a vase or something, and it's, it's for you it's not something you've not seen before, and you just describe its shape and its colours and whatever. For me, perhaps it reminds me of say, a vase that my grandmother had, and that uh, it evokes all these different associations and memories and feelings in me. We've each got a different take on it, and in a sense, that's private because your take is happening is, is yours and my take is mine but we can communicate about it i can describe 
my take on the thing. I can describe the feelings that it provokes in me and so on. I can describe the differences in uh, how it may appear because of the lighting and so on. We can, we, these things are not, uh, they're private in the sense that they're, they're happening in, one's happening in me and the other's happening in you. But that doesn't mean they're incommunicable or indeed that there's anything about them that couldn't in principle be identified from the third person perspective. Because after all, all these effects that the thing is having on you, presumably or involve changes some, somehow in your nervous system, okay? Uh, I, I'm assuming here that we don't have immaterial souls, so that uh, all our mental processes are realized in processes in our nervous system. So your take on the object, all your complex reactions to the object are realized in uh, 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 changes in your in your nervous system, they could, in principle, be observed through with suitable equipment. In principle, I say, and perhaps decoded, so that someone could say, "Oh, well, he's re- he's having this sort of particular reaction and that sort of reaction." So on, and you could confirm that um, with them um, uh, by, by 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 telling us. So there's a subjective take in the sense that there's a a take that is yours and a take that is mine, but there's nothing radically private about these. There's no, they don't involve anything happening in some <laughs> separate mental world that is inaccessible to everyone else. It's not that your take on the object involves somehow the object being presented, being sort of <laughs> an image of the object, if you like, being created in some world, in some private world of mental qualities. Uh, like, I mean, no one really believes in, in an inner show, but it's a metaphor. The idea is that there is, that the qualities of things in the world are somehow rendered in mental qualities, which we're immediately aware of. We're immediately aware of the mental, say, if the, cup is, if the object is blue, say. We're aware of this mental blueness, the feel of the blueness, and only indirectly, we're directly aware of that, and only indirectly aware of the actual blueness of the object itself, the color that we ascribe to the surface of the object. Now, that would be radically private because there is no way that a neuroscientist can penetrate into this private mental world of, 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 the, of mental politics. We can't see whether, you're the blue, whether the private mental blueness that you experience when looking at a blue thing is the same as the mental blueness I experience when looking at a blue thing because we can't get into each other's uh, uh, mental worlds and compare them. All we can do is, descri- is provide descriptions. And when it comes down to it, what can you say about blueness other than that it's, well, it's the thing that's produced, the, the experience that's produced by blue things. It bears this, these and these relations to other colors. It reminds me of this and this and this and so on. The actual essence of the mental color just escapes description. And it's this kind of privacy, the idea of something that's inaccessible in principle to anyone else that I resist. Yeah, that makes sense. Does that? Does that? Yeah. Certainly, there are things that are that are uh, that are that, that are private. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking of a number right now. Okay. Now you know you can't guess what that number is, but it doesn't mean that it's there's something there that is that that, that there is a a world that is utterly inaccessible to everyone else, which contains this number that I'm thinking of. If you could map my brain activity in sufficient detail, you could probably decode what number it was, because there's some physical changes involved in my thinking of that number that are distinctive of my of it being that number. Um, it, uh, 
it might even involve motor activity of my of my uh, of my um, uh, related to my actually saying the number. I say it to myself in inner speech. There's, there's certain sorts of of um, uh, uh, activity in motor systems related to the activity that will be involved in saying it. So anything you see or anything you imagine, there will be, although we maybe you know don't know how to do this yet, that there will be some evidence somewhere in your in the physical brain that would that would kind of point to something that you're looking at or something you're you're thinking of. There there would be some evidence in there if we were to know where that was. What else could there be? Because it's a reaction to things. Uh, everything that <laughs> my experience is simply a reaction to the world. Okay, and that reaction isn't happening magically without anything happening inside any physical changes in me. Of course, it's and they're, they're immensely complicated. There's eighty-six billion interconnected neurons, but it's changes in the in them that are um, constitute the change in my reaction to the world. Uh, if I see something that that um, scares me, say that I, so I be, be, I switch into a, a, a fear mode, I mean, all sorts of changes involved in that, and you know, it, suddenly I, my attention becomes focused. I um, uh, all sorts of physiological changes happen. Maybe um, uh, I, uh, certain memories are called up. Certain uh, I become prepared to react in certain way. All of this involves mass, uh, masses and masses of changes. Uh, with, um, within my uh, nervous system. Um, and we say, we just say, oh, uh, he was afraid. And well, that's a, that's a, and, and as far as everyday it, 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 social interaction goes, that's fine. We don't need to know any more detail. But there is a vast amount of more detail. And when you, if you spelled all that detail out completely, you wouldn't have missed anything out. There wouldn't be some essence of fear some private essence of fear that somehow was missed out of that picture. Um, so we, my, my, my suggestion really is that we're taking an everyday way of talking about things, about what things are like and what experiences are like, which is perfectly good for everyday purposes, and thinking that it is pointing us to a reality that is purely mental, completely private, indescribable uh, and, and and which can't be accounted for by by neuroscience and the sciences and that's i think an error that's an illusion yeah you're not saying it's, it's fully um it's to some extent private but but certainly not fully private it's not it's not private in the sense that it is only accessible from the first person perspective um the first-person perspective itself is a part of, is, is a is a construction, if you like, within the shared public world. To have a a, a a a perspective on things is to have a certain set of reactions to the world, which is itself part of that world. There aren't private mental worlds like the worlds that of, of of an immaterial soul that don't connect up fully, that aren't fully part of the shared public world. There's just one world, the public world. And we, I mean, here's a metaphor I sometimes like to use. Okay, so there's a there's a there's a river, which is the, um, the unfolding causal nexus of the, the, the processes of reality, and then there are little whirlpools in it where things reflect, um, um, where where uh, the activity is tightly focused and winds back on itself, and those are those are minds and perspectives.
but they're part of this larger uh, causal flow. They're not they're not separate from it, and the idea that they're separate from it is the is the illusion. People that disagree with you on this, you know, Philip Goff and David Chalmers. If you are to kind of try and sympathise with their position, what do you what do you think can what do you think the main thing they're they're missing that you, that you believe is true is? What, what do you think tempts them to, to to not see the picture the same as yourself? Well, I th- I think this is why I like to talk about illusion because I think it's I don't think that it's so much that they're missing something as that they're trusting something that I I don't trust. Uh, these in, intuitions we have, this picture of the mind that we have. And I understand why they have it, I think, because I'm kind of tempted by it myself. I can see why it's tempting to think of that mind, uh, think think of the mind in that way as something that that is uh, not fully explicable in terms of uh, 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 physical processes, if like, in terms of brain processes. It's tempting to think of the mind in that way. And the the, the the hunch that's behind a, a lot of this thinking is that you could imagine all of those brain processes occurring without this, without the actual experience of consciousness itself, without the the, the, the feeling, um, with the lights being off, as it were. Uh, and I can understand why they why they think that. Um, it's a very tempting intuition. It's a tempting theory, and I think where they the mistake is simply to to trust it and to say I, I can't see how I, I can't see any other way of thinking about consciousness. That's I think the mistake. Um, they accept a particular perspective. They, they cannot see that there is another. That, well, they they're reluctant <laughs> to see that there is another perspective. Um, and. Therefore, I think reluctant to appreciate the advantages of that other perspective. So, it's not. I don't think there are. I, I, you can conv- convict them of particular errors of reasoning or of. Uh, it's not that they've they've reasoned badly that they've made, overlooked things. It's that they have a too narrow a sense of the possibilities of the theoretical options. There's another way, there's another perspective from which you can look at this. They're located in one position, they're looking at the landscape from that position and it looks like this to them, just as um, an optical illusion when you look at it from one perspective may look like something. um, And there's this wonderful example that Nicholas Humphrey has of the impossible triangle, you know, the triangle that seems to bend back on itself in a way that some... Uh, an object couldn't in three-dimensional space. It's possible to make a physical object, um, a sort of ungainly construction of bits of wood at strange angles, which if you look at it from just the right angle, looks like an impossible triangle. It looks like you're seeing an impossible object there in front of you in three-dimensional space, one that couldn't exist in three-dimensional space. And I think that's a bit like, I think that's a a wonderful uh, metaphor. And I think that's how the... um, People like like Chalmers and, and, and Philip and are looking at consciousness. They're looking at it from a particular angle where it looks to them from that angle. That's the only way it could be. But the, to get over to uh, to to um, 
to uh, I was going to say to get over that, but that's but to, to get to get over that, you'd need to move. You need to come and 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 look at the look at the same thing from a different perspective. And that I think is what Dennett offers in his work. It's not so much a, a tightly argued series of. It's not a, 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 a tight series of arguments, although there are arguments in the book. It's more an invitation to look at the thing from another angle. And but to do that, you've got to be, you've got to be willing to try it out. There's nothing in the in there that forces you to. It's an invitation, and you've got to be prepared to accept that invitation. Come and charitably and willingly take this view and okay maybe you take it and you don't like it and you still don't like it maybe you take it and you say no it's, it's, it still doesn't work for me as well as the other one did okay fine but do that first come and have a look at what what we're offering before you reject it i think that's what i would say to people open your minds to this possibility um rather than limiting yourself um to the one that you're currently um wrapped up with yeah and that people are used to i guess this is this is something they haven't really most people considered illusionism it goes at odds with what you kind of your intuition would say so it's good to at least consider it yes and i think that's one thing that the word illusionism has helped to do is to is to shake people up a little bit and alert them to the fact that i mean i i am asking them to do something fairly radical I'm not asking them to deny that consciousness exists but i'm asking them to accept that they may be quite wrong about what consciousness is that's pretty radical um but just try it i mean it's nothing to lose um, it's not like it's not as if trying to think of it this way will somehow stop you being conscious or stop you enjoying things <laughs> i mean it's not it's not going to have any uh, it's not going to change anything except uh your understanding of reality and if that's if it changes it in a way that fits better with the way the way things work then that can only be an advantage yeah, it maybe feels a bit similar to, not that you'd necessarily um, agree with this or that you have to, but some people who claim that free will doesn't exist, they often say that it feels that people who don't agree with them have this just natural resistance to not believe in it because they, they don't want to even think about that. And it maybe sounds a bit similar here that people think, oh, I don't want to deny and sense some, some aspect of my consciousness. Yes. I mean, in the case of free will, I think there's a there's a, perfectly good sense in which we can say that free will does exist though there are certainly senses in which we we, um, we, we should we uh, we should, we should um, uh, deny that it exists I, I I have the sense that some people think that the people who are denying the existence of free will are somehow proposing that there are limits on the on their freedom Look, you're as free as you, whatever philosophical theory of free will you 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 have. You're as free as you always were. It's not that accepting this this theory is going to somehow stop you being able to do anything that you were able to do before. Um, you, you have all the freedom that you have, whatever that is. The question is, let's describe it accurately. Okay, so it's no question of this actually changing, making you less autonomous in some way. Um, it's a matter of understanding the nature of the freedom that you have. Of course, you're free. I mean, what, do you, what, what do you, I mean, what do you, what, the, the question to ask somebody who's worried about freedom is, well, what sort of freedom do you want? What kind of freedom are you worried about not having? 
I mean, if it's the, so certainly there's some freedoms you don't have, they're not free, not free to break the law, um, uh, at least not without, without um, uh, punishment. Um, you're not free to, to fly unaided. I mean, there's all sorts of things you're not free to do, but what sort of freedom is it that you're worried about? And we have all the freedom that we think we have. The question is, what's the nature of that freedom? Uh, is it compatible with, for instance, physics giving a completely safe, if, if physics did, I mean, it's debatable that it doesn't, a completely deterministic picture of the way in which the world evolves? Um, now, these are not questions about the extent of your freedom. They're questions about what your freedom involves. And I'd say the same about consciousness. Sometimes you, uh, you know, we, we have states of unconsciousness, we have states when we're sleeping and partially conscious, we have states when we're fully conscious and we have conscious experiences, we have pains and pleasures and all sorts of things. Yes, no one denies that. The question is what's involved in having those things. And um, is it possible that we have a uh, bad, or some of us at least, have a bad picture of what is involved? It's very interesting. We'll just move back though to final two questions a little bit more broad about yourself, but that was, uh, was fun to talk about. Um, I wanted to ask, I mean, I noticed on your site that you have a few interesting different pieces. You have some limericks, some lyrics, spoken poetry, a quite hilarious page of funny definitions, which I recommend people they read, they're, they're, they're very funny. It strikes me you're very, very creative outside of your philosophy as well, I, I guess. You, you enjoy doing these kind of things. Well, thank you for exploring those bits of my website. I'm not sure how many people have done so, but but thank you. Um, They're great, I should say. It's all, it's all, um, it's, it's funny, the oh, definitions of the rest of it is all, it's, it's brilliant, really. Yeah, it's unexpected. Yeah, I, do, I do like one or two of the definitions. Yes, it's something I, I it, yeah, I, I, thank you. That's very, that's very kind of you. I, I, I am exploring doing a little bit of, of, of fiction writing with, a philosoph with philosophical themes. So this is something I want to do, and I do, I do actually, I do write poetry. I haven't published much of it. Well, I haven't published any of it, but um, uh, I do write some. And I, I, I might do as I'm getting older. I'm, I'm trying to, I think, broaden out into areas that I've always wanted to explore, but felt that perhaps I didn't have the time, and um, that I, uh, that that I needed to focus on more immediate things, and I couldn't indulge these these other interests and i think as i'm getting older i'm thinking well if you're ever going to indulge them you better get on with it so and there's perhaps less pressure now to 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 uh to publish career-oriented stuff so i'm getting more more opportunities to do the things that i that i want to do but i see it as all all, all part of a same thing really it's all about trying to Trying to understand what, um, what it is to be this strange thing, the self-aware living creature. Uh, it always amazes me that we just started talking about childhood, that by the age of four, a child is, uh, is, is aware of its own existence, can think of its own existence. It's only been in, it's only, it was only born a few years ago, but said, uh, there it is, it's I mean, but, um, I'll tell you another thing that I often um, say. I, I have this vivid experience of myself as probably only four or five that I could ask myself, what am I? 
would say to myself, what am I? And it created a very, very strange sense of being dissociated somehow from my physical body because the I didn't see, this is quite um, counter to the, to, the, to the view of consciousness that I now advocate, that I was somehow separate from my physical body, a sort of dissociation, disembodiment, sense of disembodiment. And it amazes me that beings that are just, just a few years old have that level of sophistication to be able to reflect on their own existence and puzzle about it. I mean, as far as we know, we're the only creatures in the universe. We're almost certainly not the only creatures in the universe, but the only ones we know of that can do this. Uh, maybe some some apes can do a little bit of it. We don't only live, which is pretty remarkable in itself, but we can reflect on our lives. And that's an amazing thing. Once you start doing it, it's the implications of it are, are huge. And I think everything I'm trying to do is, is it's, it's sounding rather grandiose now, but it's all part of that exploration of what it is to be a, a, a self-aware creature, a self-aware living thing in this strangely contingent universe. Uh, I mean, apart from getting your daily bread and surviving, What's the, more, what, what's the what, what, what more important thing could there be to do? Yeah, interesting. So you're coming at it for all these different mediums, but ultimately... Mm. The, the it goes art. back to that, to that period, as I say, when I, was, um, when I was exploring all sorts of different uh, subjects and interests. And maybe some of them come back to the surface. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and the final question, Keith, is what plans do you have for the future with... With philosophy or otherwise, with, with work and writing and um, ideas? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I, I've got plans for a book on, uh, on illusionism. Uh, I've been gathering material for it and uh, I want to get that, um, get, get to work on that um, soon. I have another book that I have to write first. So, I'm, yeah, I'm going to, I want to keep publishing academic stuff, but I, I do want, as we've just been talking uh, I, I, about, I am. Um, Want to broaden out in different ways into perhaps into writing some philosophical fiction, perhaps even into poetry. Um, it seems it seems uh, a bit arrogant to think that one can do these things, um, but for better or worse, I have a bit of experience now. I've done a lot of thinking, probably far too much thinking. So it seems that maybe it's time to try and. Um, uh, harvest some of this um, and uh, see if anyone finds it interesting. So I want to broaden out um, into, into more, um, into having a, again, a wider conversation with people and hoping that people find that interesting and, and, and want to respond. I'm sure they will, sorry. Um, but yeah, best of luck with that and with the podcast as well. I'm looking forward to, to season three of that. And uh, yeah, just thanks so much for your time, Keith. Great to, great to speak to you today. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you enjoy the human podcast, please consider subscribing. I hope to see you soon.